It's like a void of black. There's a portal over here. Let's talk about some spooky shit. One fine day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise, and he beat the life out of the two dead boys. If you don't believe these lies are true, ask the blind man. He saw it too. This is Violent Delights, Spooky Stories, Volume 1. Happy Halloween, you spooky bitches. Today, I'm bringing you the story of the Russian sleep experiment. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. Their idea was to create a super soldier who could stay awake for several days at a time. These subjects were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed circuit cameras so they had only microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor the subjects. The chamber was stocked with books and cots to sleep on, but no bedding, running water and a toilet, and enough dried food to last five for over the month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained having promised falsely that they were freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect. Today, I'm bringing you this story after five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones in one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, and the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber repeatedly, yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. Mm. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. And then so did the whispering to the microphones. The room fell completely silent. After three more days had passed, 
the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it was impossible that no sound could be coming from the five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they would not originally do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside of the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced over the intercom, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase and a calm voice respond, We no longer want to be freed. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened, and the soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive although no one could rightly call the state that any of them were in, alive. The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subject's thighs and chest, stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of that water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. <sighs> the destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all, were self-inflicted. <sighs> The abdominal organs below the rib cage of all four test subjects had been removed. While the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place, the skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the rib cage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could have been seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh, and that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of the last few days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber, and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another one was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his legs severed by one of the oh subject's teeth. Jeez. 
Another five of the soldiers lost their lives, if you count ones that committed suicide in the following weeks after the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured, and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than 10 times the human dose of morphine derivative and still fought like a concerned animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor. His heart was seen to beat for two full minutes after he had bled out to the point where there was more air in his vascular system than there was blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word, more, over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved into a medical facility. The two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative that they had given him to prepare for the surgery. He had fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier holding that wrist was there. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died, on the operating table, it was found that his blood had triple the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force of his own muscles he had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming, his vocal cords destroyed, and he was unable to beg or object to surgery and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly that they try the surgery without anesthesia, and he did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. What? The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically impossible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times while his eyes had met hers. Mm-mm. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so that the subject could write his message. The message was simple. He wrote, keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthesia as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. 
the researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves and why they had ripped out their own guts and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced and they were placed back into the chamber awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, an ex-KGB, instead saw potential, and he wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment they let it slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all of his might. First the left, and then the right, and then the left again, just for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off of his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for the EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning back to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of a deep sleep, and then he flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming as they were to be sealed in. His brainwaves showed the same flat lines as the one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as the three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point blank between the eyes, and then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to his bed, as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you? He demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go into the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly free. I'm Savannah, and today I brought to you the story of the Russian sleep experiment, which is a creepypasta. You can find the story on creepypasta.com fandom.com I had a friend who lived in the air vents. When you're a little kid, you do some strange tasks to get attention. 
especially when you're an only child, and then poof, you're not. You're getting the little brother or sister pet talk from your mom and dad, and everything changes. You're used to being the center of the world, being told you're the most special little girl. But as mom's belly gets bigger and bigger, and dad's patience with you gets smaller and smaller, you realize it's not just going back to the way it was. Not ever. That's what happened to me when I was seven. I was the kind of kid that needs a lot of attention. You need their eyes on you, loving you, reminding you that you're the most special little girl in the whole wide world, maybe even the only special little girl. So in the last month or so before the baby came, I got creative. I have a new friend, I told them one night at dinner. At school, sweetheart, my mom asked. No, I was fidgety and excited, twitching in my seat. He lives in the air vents. His name is Marty, and he's magic. Oh, to my dad, that's fun. Eat your peas, Rosie. And that was it. That was it. I just told him about Magic Marty living in our air vents, and all I got was, that's fun. And what's worse, then they went back to talking about the baby. I'd always heard that word with such an ominous sort of importance, and whether they thought the nursery could be painted over the weekend or not. I stewed and pushed my peas around the plate. I knew I was going to think of something better. Something to make them ask me questions about Marty. About me. Like they used to. Over time, I came up with new tidbits about Magic Marty and how amazing he was. He only ate jelly beans. He could move things with his mind. He had a cat named Baseball, and he was my very best friend. But Mom and Dad didn't care all that much. So I upped the ante, and I started talking about the air vents in the rooms all over the house. And I started talking to them loud enough so that my parents could hear me in the den. Marty, I'd cry excitedly, you moved my coloring book when I was at school, didn't you? Did you do that with your mind? Marty, I'd shout with glee, I wish I could eat jelly beans for dinner like you. Marty, I'd exclaim, have you let baseball out? Kitty cats need their exercise. But nothing. The dumb old baby got everything. I started wondering if I was really special after all. And after one particularly hard day, I brought home a gold star paper, and my mom had just left it on the counter. She didn't even bother to put it on the fridge with one of my favorite fruit-shaped magnets. I just crawled underneath my bed. That day, I didn't even want attention anymore. I just wanted to hide away from the world and think about how things used to be when I noticed it. It was my air vent, a spotted metal rectangular set in the carpet and hidden by my bed. I didn't know why, but I started to talk to it, for real this time. Up until then, it had all been stories and playing for show, but that day, I decided I wasn't just going to be the most special little girl anymore. I may as well have a friend, even if it was just a made-up one. I told Magic Marty I thought baseball was a very good name for a cat. I said moving stuff with his mind must be hard, but it was a really neat trick to have. I confess that it was really cool that he only ate jelly beans, and I liked the red ones best. Which color was his favorite? And then the air vent said, The pink ones. And then it paused and said again, They taste like cotton candy. I stared at the vent. I had a hell of an imagination, sure, but even at seven I knew voices weren't really supposed to come out of air vents. Oh, I said, lifting my chin from my hands. I didn't really know what else to say. You're a very nice little girl, Rosie. The voice was a man's voice, pleasant, lilting, and almost like a song. It was, if I'm being honest, exactly what I thought Magic Marty's voice should sound like. 
you're very nice little girl for talking to me, telling me such wonderful stories about your life and your parents. You're a very special little girl. Wow, thanks I said surprise. It felt like the first nice thing someone had said to me in a long time. And I mean, if someone as great as Magic Marty thought I was special, maybe it was true. But I made you up, Marty. There was a long pause, and then a tone that almost held a chuckle in it. Are you sure, Rosie? Suddenly, no. I wasn't sure at all. Rosie, my special little girl, how could you make up all of my magical adventures? You're special, yes, but you're not magic. Now Marty did laugh, a wonderful musical sound that made me giggle a little, too. How could you make a good old baseball here? A pleasant meow floated through the metal slots in the air vent. And Marty had a point. I mean, all those crazy things that he could do, and a cat, a real-life cat meowing and everything. I couldn't have made that up, not on my own. It only made sense that I'd been talking to him all this time for real, and just had been distracted by, well, by the baby. Magic Marty, I said, laying back down again. I don't want a little brother or sister. I miss when mom and dad just liked me. They spelled me out again, and this time it sounded sad. Of course you don't, Marty said sympathetically. Of course not. Look at babies anyway, garbage, noisy little stinkers. They can't even do a cartwheel. Let that sink in before probing slightly. I bet you can do a cartwheel. I can, I can, I cried out, eager to scramble out from under my bed and show him, but he shushed me right away. Quiet now, Rosie. If your parents find out we're friends, well, they might not let me live in the air vents anymore. They might decide to let me go. The idea struck such a cold horror in me that I scooched even closer to the vent, now pressing my face against the smooth metal. No, Marty, no. I'd only just found a new friend. How could my parents make him go so soon? They're going to have their stupid baby. Why can't I have you for a friend? There was a small, large hump in my, lump in my throat that I couldn't swallow down for some reason, and I was on the verge of tears. Don't cry, Rosie, said Magic Marty in a voice as sweet and smooth as honey. I will think of something. For the next month, Marty and I talked about everything. Every day after school, I would crawl under my bed, push my face close to the air vent, and tell him about my day. Marty oohed and awed and asked questions, asked for more. He also asked when he thought I'd be getting a new brother or sister. I told him I didn't know. One day I came home and Teresa, a teenage neighbor, was over at the house. She was sitting on the couch instead of my heavily pregnant mother. Hey, Rosie girl, she said as I walked in and dropped my backpack. Your mom and dad are at the hospital. You're going to have a new little brother or sister soon. Neat, I said. But I didn't think it was neat at all. I'm going to go to my room. It's coming, isn't it, Rosie? Magic Marty's voice asked me from the air vent. Yeah, maybe tomorrow or in a few days. I don't know. I don't really care. Do you think it'll be bad when it gets here? For the first time, there was something else in Marty's voice. Not laughter, not honey. Something else. Do you think it'll be very bad for you, Rosie? Do you think your parents will even look at you ever again once the stinky little thing is here? Do you think it'll be even worse? I hadn't even considered it. What do you think, Marty? I asked, worried. I think, he said after a very long moment, that I promised you I would think of something, and I'm very pleased to tell you that I have. A glimmer of hope, I glanced left, making sure Teresa couldn't hear us, and then back at the air vent. 
Really? You can fix everything? You can make it so the baby doesn't ruin it? Oh, Rosie, my girl. Marty let the words draw out like stretching a lot of chewing gum. My magic, I can do anything. Magic Marty told me to wait. He told me he would fix everything. He was my friend. My mom, dad, and the stupid baby Sophie came home a few days later. She was a pink bundle of squished up skin, soft, with little tufts of hair. I had to admit, she was sort of pretty. And it was kind of neat how small she was. I didn't like how she sounded when she cried, though. And that first night, she was screaming so loud. She was so loud, I got under my bed and put the pillow over my head, hoping that if I couldn't block out her cries long enough to sleep, that maybe Marty would be around and we could talk about his secret plan. Marty, I whispered, but no one answered. Baseball? Nothing. After a while, the muffled sounds of Sophie's shrieks finally stopped, and I fell asleep under the bed, hoping that Mom and Dad hadn't found out about Marty before he could fix everything. When I woke up, my room was full of light, but was still dark at the same time. Stroves of red and blue streaked the walls like fireworks on the 4th of July. I was waking up because someone was pulling me, trying to get me out from under the bed. For half a sleepy second, I was sure it was Marty. He was pulling me out because I didn't have, he didn't have to live in the vents anymore. He had talked to mom and dad and they had decided he could come live with us in the house. But then I saw a police officer with a, sur a stern, serious face and I knew something was wrong. Police officers were only around when there was something bad. A neighbor had heard screaming and called the police, but it was too late. My parents were found in their bed, shredded to bloody meat, stab wounds, and a lot of them, the autopsy report said. It was a robbery gone wrong, or more accurately, an abduction gone wrong, because little three-day-old Sophie was gone, her brand new crib empty. Police told me I was lucky. Whatever monster had hurt my family probably hadn't found me because I'd been hiding underneath my bed. I made it out okay. I stayed with relatives in foster homes, got lots of therapy. I was treated all right. None of those horror stories most unfortunate orphans have to survive. In therapy, I realized I had made up Magic Marty as a coping mechanism. He'd become more real to me than my parents had because I so desperately needed to think that someone found me special. I never really heard anything, and my coping mechanism, as it turns out, had probably saved my life. Against the odds, I grew up well-adjusted, did all those things you're supposed to do, graduated high school, met a guy, got married, and eight months ago, got pregnant. I've been really excited. So long without a real family on my own, and now it was going to change. But yesterday, I was setting up my daughter's nursery, and I dropped one of her little blankets on the ground. My husband wasn't home, so after a few clumsy attempts, I managed to get down on a knee before I could pick it up. But it was covering an air vent. I felt a cold chill run through me for no reason, but I told myself my same old mantra. Magic Marty wasn't real. Magic Marty was a coping mechanism. Magic Marty was something I had made up. And then a voice, as syrupy sweet and dripping with honey, said, It's coming, isn't it, Rosie? It was like all the strength had gone out of my legs. I wobbled backwards and landed on my ass. Not real. I had made him up. Is it a little girl, Rosie? Magic Marty said. Because there was no one else that voice belonged to. No one else it could belong to. Oh, I hope it is. Oh, I so hope it's a little girl. Do you know why, Rosie? Do you know why, Rosie girl? You're not real, I said, but I didn't believe it. I suddenly realized I had never believed it. Because I fixed it. 
I started to laugh then, and then somewhere in the laughter I thought I could hear the yowl of a feral cat. I fixed it because you asked me to. You don't even know the best part. I just wanted to feel special. The best part, Magic Marty chuckled, is how she tasted. The last thing I heard before I scrambled to my feet and fled screaming from the house was, The pink ones taste like cotton candy. This is Bertie bringing you I Had a Friend Who Lived in the Air Vents by M.J. Pack. This was an edited down version for time. To read her full story, please visit reddit slash nosleep. Japanese Bathroom Ghosts An origin story. Author of the book Yokai, Mysterious Creatures of Japanese Folklore, Michael Dylan Foster says, The bathroom is a somewhat unusual space in a household or school or wherever it exists. He describes the bathroom as a liminal space, or what you may remember as thin places, in that they connect the normal, everyday world to a whole different realm. The bathroom is a place of transition, and the toilet in particular is a portal to a mysterious other world. And, even though we generally flush things down, it would not seem surprising for something mysterious to come up through the toilet. Hanako-san, or Tore no Hanako-san. Like all ghost stories, the details of Hanako's origins vary somewhat, but in general, Hanako is said to be the ghost of a young girl who died around World War II and now haunts school bathrooms. Usually described as wearing an out-of-fashion red pinafore dress and has a bob haircut, she can be summoned by going to the girl's bathroom on the third floor, knocking on the third stall three times and saying, Are you there, Hanako-san? Depending on regional variations, Hanako will respond by saying, Yes, I am. Or, a ghostly hand will appear. If someone enters the stall, they could also be eaten by a three-headed lizard. Hanako is generally just a spooky presence, meant for a good scare. Hanako has appeared in numerous anime series, television shows, and... The legend is well known because it is essentially an urban legend associated with schools all over Japan. Since the 1990s, it has also been used in movies, so it became part of popular culture, not just orally transmitted or local folklore. Kashima Raiko There is another legend of a young girl named Kashima Raiko, said to be the ghost of a girl who died when her legs were severed by a train. Her legless torso now haunts bathroom stalls, asking unlucky visitors, where are my legs? The correct response is on the Mansion Expressway. It could save your life. Otherwise, it's said that she might tear a person's legs off. This is a bathroom-centric variation of another Japanese ghost story known as the Teke Teke, which also features the ghost of a young girl who was cut in half by a train. There's also a version of this story that suggests she will appear within one month to anyone who learns her story. It probably sounds familiar to anyone who knows the popular 
ring franchise, which Foster compares to the liminal aspect that makes bathrooms so ripe a setting for horror. Note the classic Japanese horror film and book, Ringu, in which Sadako is in a well. The association of the well as a mysterious place has precedence in earlier Japanese folklore. Also, if we think about the imagery of Sadako coming out of a television set, we get the same idea that the television is a portal to another world. She literally crawls from another world into our own. Akamanto. Tracing back to 1930s, but most commonly the 1980s, one of the most gruesome of Japan's bathroom ghosts is Akamanto, or the Red Cape. Also sometimes called Blue Cape, or in some variations Red Paper, Blue Paper, this modern spirit is said to resemble a person completely covered by a flowing cape and hood. Wearing a mask that's sometimes recorded as being gold, that hides an irresistibly handsome face. He is said to have been killed in the bathroom, dying in a humiliating state, therefore becoming a vengeful spirit. He is said to appear to people, usually in the last stall, as they are going to wipe, asking a strange question. Sometimes the spirit asks, red cape or blue cape? Or offers red paper or blue paper? Choosing red will lead Akamanto flaying a person's back, creating a red cape. Or another gruesome bloody death while choosing blue will cause the spirit to suffocate you. Getting clever and choosing any other color will just cause you to be dragged to the underworld. Many variations on ways of escaping include some saying there's no way to outsmart this ghost. Others say, choose yellow, and he dunks your face in the toilet. But hey, you're not dead. But for those who are desperate for the some solution, the only way to escape its punishment is to decline its offer entirely. These are Japanese bathroom ghosts. You can find more stories on the YouTube channel Creeps McPasta or through Japanese bathroom ghosts found on Atlas Obscura. Thank you for joining Violent Delights. This has been our very special spooky Halloween edition. Sweet dreams. And happy Halloween. Halloween.